All right, Matthew chapter 1 at verse 1. Before we read it, let's, let's pray together. Father, show us glorious things from your word regarding the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'll do this by the work of your Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother married had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Thus far the reading of God's word this evening. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here uh, tonight, the book of Matthew begins, it's the gospel according to Matthew, and within the first six verses of the beginning of this great uh, gospel, Matthew blasts through some pretty standard conventions. He includes women in the genealogy of Jesus. Genealogies did not commonly list women. In fact, if you read through the genealogies in like Genesis 10, 1 Chronicles chapters one through nine, that's a long genealogy. Uh, Ezra chapter two, Ezra chapter eight, and Nehemiah seven, you'll discover that there are some rogue references to wives and particularly who they bore but there are very uh, seldom references to women in genealogies. The emphasis is upon men and sons. So that's a bit of a, a, a blasting through one convention. Secondly, the women who were included leap off the page for interesting reasons. He didn't include Sarah, Abraham's wife. He could have. He didn't include Rebecca, Isaac's wife. The Holy Spirit could have done that. And the Holy Spirit didn't include Leah, the mother of Judah. He included women whose very names brought to mind scandal, sin, and outsiderness. Names which the average Jewish person which would have been embarrassed by. And he begins in verse 3, talking about Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. I want to just briefly walk us through that before we end in verses 18 through 25. Uh, 18 through 25. If you flip back to Genesis 38, I'm not asking you to do that, but if you do in your mind... You'll remember Tamar had the unfortunate circumstance of being married to Judah's firstborn son, Ur. He was a wicked man. God put him to death. It was incumbent upon Onan, a brother of Ur, to actually have relations with Tamar and thus bear up a son for the name of Ur. But Onan was also wicked, 
and he made sure that Tamar would not get pregnant whenever they were active together. And the Lord put Onan to death. Now you're Judah, the dad of Ur and Onan. And what was Judah thinking? We've got a problem and the problem is Tamar. So he told Tamar, you go home to your father's house and when Shelah, my other son, is raised up, I'll notify you and you can come and get married to him. Well, he, wrote, he was raised up and he got older and Tamar did not get any summons. And so she realized this isn't going to happen. So one day Judah's off on a bit of a trip and Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She dresses like a prostitute, stands on the side of the road and she knows Judah's ways that he's a man who likes to have a lot of sexual relationships with women. And so he approaches her. She's dressed like a prostitute, sleeps with her, and she takes as payment, or I guess a guarantee of a payment, his staff, his cord, and his signet. He goes back to his place. She's pregnant with child, and he later finds out that this happens. This is Hollywood couldn't write a story dirtier than this. <laughs> well, when he finds out that Tamar was sexually immoral, do you remember what he did? He summoned her to be stoned to death. And then when she was being brought out to be stoned, she said, by the man who owns these, I'm pregnant, and held the staff and the signet and the cord of Judah. And it finally hit him like a ton of bricks. She's more righteous than I. And he relented. And anyways, into the world was born Judah uh, through that uh, very sinful, or no, into the world was born Perez and Zerah, the twins, through that very sinful means, through a father sleeping with his daughter-in-law, through a father who, after he did that, was ready to throw his daughter-in-law under the bus, even though he was maybe one of the most sexually immoral people in Israel at that time, or among God's people at that time, it was tremendous, and yet they're included in this genealogy. The second thing I want to highlight is verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, if you flip back to Joshua 2, we know from Scripture that Rahab is notorious for two things. She was a prostitute. Now, we know the Lord saved her. We know that she lived among the Israelites after the Lord saved her when the people conquered uh, the city of Jericho. Uh, if she had not changed her ways, they would have stoned her because that was the result of sexual immorality. And in Hebrews 11, she's actually commended for her faith in hiding the spies. But before she was saved, she acted as a prostitute. We don't know what that looked like. We don't have details on it. Praise the Lord. But that was her lifestyle. That's what she did. She sold her body for money. And we also know that Rahab wasn't the only sinner in Jericho because the only reason you can be a prostitute, the only way you can is if there is a demand for it. So she was a sinner living among sinners. She was also a foreigner, a Canaanite from Jericho. She was not a true-blooded true Israelite, but a foreigner who did not belong among the people of God, and she's the mother of Boaz. It would have been amazing to be a fly on the wall to hear the stories that Rahab could tell Boaz about her coming to faith after she heard everything about the crossing of the Red Sea and the Israelites' victories over various kings. Well, the third one that jumps out is Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth in verse 5, another lady in Jesus' genealogy, these four women. Now, Ruth was a Moabitess, and Moab had its beginning in Genesis 19 when Lot's two daughters slept with him. One named her son Moab, and he became the father of the nation Moab and the Moabites. So an incestuous beginning to the country of Moab. 
the Lord excluded Moab children from the assembly of the people down to the 10th generation. Here it is, Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. No Moabite or Ammonite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. It would have been better to be an Egyptian. It would have been better to have been a Canaanite or even a Philistine. If you're a Moabite or an Ammonite, you had a big X on your forehead. And something else about Moab. Moab led Israel into Baal worship on its way into Canaan, Numbers 25. So Ruth was a Moabitess from a forbidden land. She was an outcast of the worst kind. What one would think of Ruth, what would one think of Ruth being in the genealogy of the Messiah? Embarrassing. Remember, Matthew was a gospel written to Jews first. He's convincing them that Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. It's not only written to Jews, but if you notice, he goes through the Old Testament, said, thus it was fulfilled often, and quotes directly from the Old Testament to convince Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. Ruth, in their genealogy, again, embarrassing. And then maybe the whopper of them all, although I'm not sure this is the worst one, but verse 6, we're told David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, 2 Samuel 11. Matthew could have said David was the father of Solomon, leaving us to consider the noble qualities of King David. He was a man after God's own heart. He fought valiantly for the Lord against Israel's enemies. He suffered patiently and cared greatly for his son Absalom. He danced naked before the Ark of the Covenant because he had such a heart for the Lord, but the Holy Spirit has a point to make here. Jesus' genealogy is filled with sinners, and Solomon's entrance into the world is one more episode of sin. David, we're told in 2 Samuel 11, sat out, the fighting that year. Remember, it was the time of the year when the kings go to war. David decided to stay home. He was on his couch, <laughs> got up off his couch, went onto the roof one day. Clearly, he's lounging around, not doing what he should be doing. And he sees this woman Bathsheba bathing, and he likes what he saw. And so he summons this hot woman to come over. He inquires first about her name. Oh, that's Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He asks her over. They sleep together. She gets pregnant. It doesn't just stop there. Then he says, uh-oh, we've got to cover this up. So he summons Uriah back from the front lines and has said, hey, go home and sleep with your wife. Go hang out with her a little bit. Doesn't work, gets him drunk, still sends him home. And Uriah is so noble. He's like, there's guys fighting out there on the front line. I can't enjoy this time with my wife if I know that other men are risking their lives and they can't be spending time with their wives. I can't do this. So David sends him back to the front line where he is put on the front line and he is killed. Uriah is a Hittite, but he's a loyal man, refusing to sleep with his wife when all of his men are out fighting. Uriah is the upright and godly one whose name should be more eligible to be included in the genealogy of Christ. But you know what's included here is King David's name, along with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, which conjures up what they did, adultery and then murder. Having briefly recapped a bit of the highlights of this genealogy, knowing full well there's a lot more dirt to uncover if we wanted to in each person's life, but just looking at the women who stand out of this genealogy, telling a story of sin and redemption, one does not have to be a smart person to conclude that anyone who is born of this line is going to be a mess. No one who's born of the line in Matthew chapter 1 is going to be able to offer the world any hope. And we would only expect this line of people to give birth to more people who will cause the same kinds of problems over and over and again. And then in verse 18, we read this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. 
Now, if you read that for the first time after reading the genealogy, you might start thinking this. I don't know if I want to know how this happened. <laughs> I know how a lot of these other births took place. I don't know if I want to go on to verse 19. It happened this way. Let's just stop and pretend it was good. Is this something I have to cover my ears for? And that's the lead into the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're told in verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. At this point in world history, there are only three beings in the entire universe who are aware that this child's entrance into the world is different than the entrance of every child before. God and Mary for sure, and likely Elizabeth. We don't know how much Elizabeth knew about uh, the miraculous conception conceived by the Holy Spirit, but she knew. So we have God, Mary, and Elizabeth who are aware of what's taking place. Ever thought about that much? I'm not telling you you should think about it, but isn't it an interesting thing to think about? How did the Holy Spirit pull this off? How did he fertilize Mary's egg, or how did he use Mary's DNA to make a child, right? We're not told any of those details, but again, just fascinating, this conception a human being entering into the world, God the Son taking on flesh and entering into this world in a way that no human being for thousands of years ever had and ever will. This is the only time it's ever been done. It's the only time it ever will done, will be done, that a person entered the world, someone entered the world without original sin, without entering into the world with Adam's condemnation and guilt hanging over their head. It's a great mystery. Now, there are some things which have to happen yet for this to be straightened out. Mary knows, all right, what's conceived in me is of the Holy Spirit, but Joseph has to find this out and sort through things himself. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph knows math, one plus one equals two. Mary's pregnant, I didn't sleep with her, we have a problem, okay? So Joseph says, hey, he's a kind man, he's a just man, it was common in that day where if, one of you, if your wife especially uh, cheated on you or found sexual immorality in her, men would put her to public shame, embarrass her, make a public ordeal out of it. Joseph was not going to do that. He was a good man. He was a Christ-like man. And he said, I'm going to do this quietly. We're going to do this in a way that does not put her to shame, but respects her. Now, according to Deuteronomy 24, Joseph could legally divorce Mary. When a man takes a wife and marries her, Deuteronomy 24.1, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, that was legitimate as far as a divorce goes. And in Joseph's time, it was not just an option, but nearly a requirement if this happened, nearly a requirement for Joseph to say, Mary, we're done. In verse 20, the translation is, but as he considered these things, a better way of putting it is this, when he had resolved to do this. Joseph had thought about this, but he's ready to act now. He had already resolved that he was going to put Mary away and no longer marry her. Joseph just needed someone to take a look at the situation so that he could go through the due process of divorcing Mary. He was on his way to make that happen. And when he had resolved to put Mary away, the following happened, verse 20. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
So the angel showed up and said, Joseph, don't worry about this. This is not from another man. Mary has not been unfaithful. This is from God, particularly God, the Holy Spirit. Now you can imagine what that must have been like for Joseph. I don't know what your life, what life is like for you when you wake up from a sort of a barn burner of a dream. You're like, well, I've got images floating around in my head and I don't know if I'm still dreaming or awake now or I don't even know where I am. I don't even know who I am. But Joseph awoke from this dream and life changed drastically. The angel said to take Mary because the son conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, not a man. How does that work? <laughs> what is going on here? How is this even possible? Never had a dream like that before. And since that day, nobody's ever had a dream like that. And by this time now, there are four beings in all the world that know what's going on. We got Joseph, Mary, God, and likely Elizabeth. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. Verse 24, he took Mary to be his wife, but he didn't know her until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So they didn't consummate the marriage. They waited and Joseph understood what was going on to some extent. Now, in Joseph's dream, he had two things revealed to him. If you look at verse 23, he was told that Jesus is God. Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. A quote directly out of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So he knew and probably passed along to Mary this information that the child was God. But not just God, God with us. This child is God come in the flesh. This is God coming down into this world, the creator coming into his creation. They understood that. He also understood that Jesus is a savior who will save his people from their sins. He was told, you're going to name this child Jesus. And Joseph did just that. And Jesus means savior. Jesus came to save people from their sins. And now let me turn from Joseph and Mary to us. And I want to finish here briefly in our time tonight. There are three things I'd like to sort of bring home for us tonight, sitting here about 2,000 years on the other side of this. Regarding those whom Jesus came to save, what the passage makes clear is Jesus came to save sinners, those people who have sins. He came to save his people from their sins. Charles Spurgeon said it well when he wrote, and I quote, he shall save his people. It is not said he shall reward his people for their righteousness, nor is it promised that he shall save them from becoming sinners, but he shall save his people from their sins. Do you need saving? Has the Holy Spirit taught that you need salvation? Let your hearts be encouraged. This is the character of all his people. He never had a chosen one who could do without washing in the Savior's blood. If you are righteous in yourself, you are not one of his people. If you were never sick in soul, you are none of the folk that the great physician has come to heal. If you were never guilty of sin, you are none of those whom he has come to deliver from sin. And he makes this appeal. Oh, sinner, I mean real sinners, not you that call yourselves so because you are told you're such, but you who feel yourselves to be guilty before God. Here is good news for you. Oh, you self-condemned sinners who feel that if you ever get salvation, Jesus must bring it to you and be the beginning and the end of it. I pray you rejoice in this dear, this precious, this blessed name, for Jesus has come to save you. 
even you. To use the lyrics of one song, there ain't no sinner that Jesus can't save. And some might ask, isn't there a limit on how sinful we can be before we become unsavable? And I'd ask, did you read the genealogy? Go back and look at Genesis 38, 2 Samuel 11, Joshua 2, and you'll discover sin in all of its brightness shining off the pages. And Jesus was a savior for those sinners like he is for us. And if we're still not convinced that Jesus can be a savior for someone as sinful as myself or ourselves, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, this great passage says this, do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral, now catch this list, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Catch this. And such were some of you. Whoa. That's a really bad list. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, who are now believers, do you want to know what the Lord saved you from? You want to know how bad as sinners you were? He just described them before they came to Christ. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Again, there ain't no sinner that Jesus can't save. And sinners are the only people Jesus saves. If you aren't a sinner, then you can't be saved. The second thing I want to highlight is that salvation requires a replacement. Jesus is born as the second Adam. Jesus is humanity 2.0, where God started over. A unique being was born into the world in a unique way in order to overturn original sin. And what the incarnation tells us is that our condition of sin was so bad off, so hopeless, so irretrievable, that the only way God could save any of us was by replacing us with someone else. We needed a full replacement. He didn't just send instruction from heaven, say, hey, you guys are pretty close. Just fix a few things here change a little bit about you, and you'll be fine, and I'll accept you into heaven. He said, wow, this is so bad. We're just going to scrap the whole first design. Humanity 1.0 is done. Here's humanity 2.0, the second Adam, and he's going to do it right. He's going to fully obey. He's going to pay for the sins of humanity 1.0, and everybody who believes in him will have eternal life. Salvation requires a full-on Replacement. No one's saved with a Band-Aid or with good teaching. No one's saved with cheerleading. The only way we are saved is with a full-on replacement. And Jesus came to replace us. Well, that's good news. He came to obey the law, which means that our obedience to the law doesn't do anything to contribute to our salvation. I hope that's a burden lifter for you. It is for all of us as believers. I don't obey in order to be saved. I don't obey to become more acceptable to God. I'm fully acceptable to God and Jesus Christ. He's obeyed. And my, my obedience is just nonstop joy and praise and thankfulness to God. I don't earn my salvation. Jesus earned it for me. And the last thing I want to highlight here before we close is salvation requires incarnation. We all know that there's no way for a paramedic to save someone from death unless that paramedic is present with the person. 
There's no way for a fireman to rescue someone from a burning building unless that fireman is on the scene of the fire running into the house. And we all know there's no way for a military unit to rescue an American hostage without actually going into hostile territory to take down those who are holding the hostage captive. The same way there's no way for God to rescue us unless he actually comes into this world. And at Christmas, that's what he did. And it demonstrates not just to us, but to the whole world. It demonstrates to everybody, Jews and Greeks in the first century, Americans, Africans, Asians, all over the world, it demonstrates to the whole world that God cares about something. And he cares about this, the salvation of sinners, filling heaven with people who stink, who are morally broken, who can't do life right, and who have no hope of getting there unless God buys their way into heaven with the blood of his son, paying for our sins and giving us full entrance, standing in the robe of Jesus' righteousness. That's great news. Let's pray.